0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: So we're coming to the end of the Joseph cycle. um, And this week we are so I'm going to catch us up just a little bit for anyone who doesn't know um, the story, but in very broad strokes. Um, And then we're going to look at um, this like really incredible scene, which I just find this year. I don't know why, but you you know how I am this year. I just find this this scene with Judah um, incredibly poignant and very powerful. So it's turning out that everything I'm picking is from the first year triennial cycle reading. So maybe it's because we haven't seen it in two years. You know, it, this is the third year, you know, so year three, we haven't seen it in three years. So I don't know, but, um, but, but it's really, it's a very powerful scene. Okay. So, um, where we were, I don't know where we left off with Yosef. I don't even know if we started the Yosef. Oh, yeah. We, he was, it was with the dream, right? And all that stuff, right? Remember, we looked at texts around, around that. Um, and so, He's in Egypt. He's risen to be Pharaoh's number two, partly by interpreting Pharaoh's dream sequence that he interpreted to mean um, that it was going to be seven years. Seven years of bumper crops are on their way. Uh, And then it was going to be seven years of famine. And so um, that, that Pharaoh would need to prepare for the seven years of famine during the seven years of abundance. And because he comes up with this idea that that's how you're going to get through the seven lean years, um, Pharaoh says, fine, you do it. It's your idea. And if you're right, you're the guy to handle it. So that means Joseph rises to number two in Egypt. Um, and I mean, there's lots more detail, obviously, but, but in broad strokes, he, he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. So he, his brothers come because there's a famine in Canaan. When there's a famine in Egypt, right now there's also a famine in Canaan. So it's, you know, regional. And so his family comes down because there's nowhere for them to get grain. They have money, but money doesn't do you any good if you can't buy bread. Right. So I think, I think of, uh, remembering seeing pictures in the Soviet Union of people standing in line in stores and having nothing to buy. Right. Or if you, if you remember a thing called COVID lockdown, um, it doesn't matter how much money you have if there's no toilet paper to buy. Right. Like, so, um, it, that's the situation that his family has money, um, but they, there's nowhere to get grain because of the regional famine, the regional grain shortage. So they have to go to the only place that has grain, which of course at this point is Egypt. So they come to Egypt, and Joseph pretty quickly figures out who they are. Um, they of course don 't know who he is he looked they haven 't seen him in twenty years, and he you know he is completely egyptianized right he 's completely assimilated um, and he 's very powerful, so you can imagine all the trappings that he would be wearing and displaying um, given his station. Um, and so they have no clue. There's no reason for them to have any clue that the brother they sold into slavery, um, to the, you know, Ishmaelites, um, that, that this is the guy, right? So they, they have no clue, but he understands who they are. And then if you'll recall, he sets up a test whereby he frames Benjamin for the theft of his chalice, the chalice with which he would do divination. In Egypt, if you do divination, you have a special chalice for that. And he puts that chalice in Benjamin's sack and frames him so that he's caught with Joseph's chalice and says to the brothers, I'm, you know, my chalice is gone. We're going to search y'all. And whoever it's found with stays with me, like forfeits their life essentially. And so, um, of course, he's framed Benjamin. He knows exactly who's going to, where they're going to find the cup. They find the chalice in Benjamin's stuff in his backpack. And um, so Benjamin's life is forfeit. Remember, Benjamin is the o- only other son of Rachel. So it's not an accident that Joseph picks Benjamin. It's his only full brother. And it's the only other son of his mother, Rachel. So if the hatred they had for him was in part about resenting and hating Rachel and Rachel's role in Jacob's life, then taking Benjamin makes sense to test them, right? If he's going to test, have they changed? Would they do the same thing? The only way to do that on some level is to take Rachel's only other son. But also, um, he suspects, I suspect, he suspects, and the writer suspects that he suspects that his father sees Benjamin in a special way because Benjamin's the only surviving son of Rachel and is the youngest. So for all these reasons, Joseph picks Benjamin to frame um, and to see what the brothers will do, to see have they changed, to see are they the same people that were so quick to turn on him? And of course, um that's that's where we are now. We're coming up to where we start this week's parsha is he has taken Benjamin. Um, and and said his life is forfeit. So now the brothers know they have to go home and tell Jacob they lost Rachel's other son. And they ha- and Judah said, I, I will stand as surety for the boy to his father. So now Judah would have to go home and say, I lost Benjamin for you. You're welcome. So he, of course, does not want to go there. He does not want to do that. So I want to just, I'll shut up after this and we'll look at the text. But, but the, the other crucial thing to remember is if you remember that whole story about Tamar, remember Judah has three sons, two of them die who have been promised to Tamar or married to Tamar. I can't remember. Um, she's supposed, she's promised his third son. Because if you don't have a son with your husband, you get his brother so that you can have a son in the dead brother's name. Judah refuses to give her the third son because he kind of blames her for the fact that his sons keep dying. So that has to have something to do with her. And he won't give her the third son, which means she's living as a a living shadow. She can't remarry because she's promised to the third son, but he won't give her the third son. So he's withholding her only way to have a child <clears throat> and and have a life. And so if you'll recall, she dresses up as a harlot and she seduces Judah when he, they are taking the sheep for shearing, which takes like a week and it's a whole big thing. And it's a festival. It's like Burning Man in the ancient world. And so um, she hangs out at Burning Man and seduces Judah. And becomes pregnant with twins by Judah. When he finds out she's pregnant, he brings her out to be burned, to be executed, because she was promised to his son. So he won't give her the son, but when she turns out pregnant, he's going to kill her. But she's very clever. She took his driver's license um, when she was having sex with him and then shows his driver's license. She says, I am pregnant by the person whose driver's license this is. And now he is publicly called out for, right, his behavior. And so he's now, he, everyone knows he's the father of the twins. Well, actually she does it privately. So she doesn't embarrass him. Um, but he realizes the error of his ways and, um, doesn't kill her, which is very generous. Um, and so, um, so that's all happened in the interim. That's all happened to Judah. He's lost two sons and almost killed his daughter-in-law and grandchildren or no, his children, his daughter-in-law and children almost killed them because of his pride and, you know, whatever. So that's all happened in the interim. So that's the Judah that we're going to see in our Torah portion. So there's the Judah at the beginning of the Joseph narrative. Then there's a Judah who goes through a whole thing and is the Judah we see this week. Okay. So let's, let's pick up at the end of the last Parsha. Yosef says to them, what is this deed you have done? Do you not know that a man like me practices divination? Like, you know, I need that cup and y'all took it and y'all know how important that cup is. Why would you do this to me? Who's been so good to you? Judah replies, what can we say? My Lord, how can we plead? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered the crime of your servants. Like there's nothing he can do. The evidence has been found. There's nothing. What can he say? Uh, We didn't take it. Here we are then slaves of my Lord, the rest of us, as much as he in whose possession the goblet was found. Meaning we will all stay. We will all be your servants, your slaves. And Joseph, but Joseph replies, far be it from me to act thus like, ugh. What are you insulting me right now to say I would be unjust and keep y'all who didn't do anything? (laughs) Far be it from me to act like that. Only the one in whose possession the goblet was found shall be my slave. The rest of you go back in peace to your father. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Go back in peace to your father. Yeah. Go tell your father that Benjamin will be staying with me. So that's where last Parsha ends, Miketz, and now we're at Vayugash. So one thing I could have done, I almost did, but didn't do is um, there is a lot to say about this word. It only appears five times in the Torah and only in the book of Genesis. So one thing we could do, um, we're not gonna, maybe another time um, is look at, all of the uses of this word Vayigash, this verb about approaching, about meeting. Um, And each one of them is significant. It's kind of like the word, you know, Nitzav. We've talked about Omid means to stand. Nitzav means to kind of present yourself and to be standing more like a monument. So this word is similar in that it always means something big. It's never like, oh, when he ran into somebody, on the 405. Like that is not how Vayigash is used. So we, we could look at each time this is used in, in Genesis and see what we come to, but we're not. Okay. But but it's a momentous word. Vayigash. So we already know, those of us who know Torah already know, uh-oh, something's about to go down because we're using this verb. Vayigash elav Yehuda. So Yehuda yegasht towards Joseph. So he... He's approaching Joseph, so Joseph is the second most powerful man in Egypt. You're talking to right the ruler of the world at that point because everyone is starving, and only Egypt has grain so this this is the guy, other than Pharaoh, he's the guy Yehuda, and Yehuda has the nerve to approach him. What are you going to say? When you're approaching the most powerful man in the world, having just had your brother convicted of a crime, Vayomer. And here's what he says. Be adoni. It's translated here as please, but really be in Hebrew means literally it means in me. In me, my master, but it but it's being translated as, you know, kind of like here I am, you know. It doesn't mean please, but here in this construct, it seems to be a pleasantry of some kind. My master, Adoni, let let your servant speak, a thing, a word in the ears of my master. But don't let your nostrils flare, right? So please do not get pissed off. Be with your servant. because you are like Pharaoh. Meaning, I know you're that powerful. et avadav av You asked us, do we have? um do you have a father or a, another brother? Meaning, a brother who's not here. And Joseph did ask them this. We told my Lord, we have an old father and there is a child of his old age, the youngest. His full brother is dead so that he alone is left of his mother and his father dotes on him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to to me that I may set eyes on him. That's what happened, right? They left Benjamin at home because Judah said, no way are you taking Benjamin? No way. And Joseph insists because he knows who these guys are. He wants to see Benjamin. So they bring Benjamin down. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave him, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, do not let me see your faces. When we came back to your servant, my father, we reported my Lord's words to him. Later, our father said, go back and procure some food for us. We answered, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us, can we go down for we may not show our faces to the man unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father said to us, as you know, my wife bore me two sons, but one is gone from me. And I said, alas, he was torn by a beast and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me, too, and he meets with disaster, you will send my white head down to shale in sorrow. Now, if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, since his own life is so bound up with his, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will send the white head of your servant, our father, down to shale in grief. Now your servant, meaning Judah, has pledged himself for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, I shall stand guilty before my father forever. Therefore, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy, and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father unless the boy is with me? Let me not be witness to the woe. That would overtake my father. And this is where he stops speaking. This is a different Judah. Judah says it will kill him. And I did that once. And now Judah has been a father. Who has lost two sons. He cannot go to his father. And say. Because he participated in the loss of the first one. And now he's responsible for the loss of the second one. And he just. Can't do it. And he pleads with Joseph, take me instead. Keep me. I said I would be surety for the boy. Take me. So Joseph is so moved by this. So he was no longer able to control himself. With all the people attending him. And he cried out, have everyone withdraw from me. So there's no one else about when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. His sobs were so loud that the Egyptians could hear. And so the news reached Pharaoh's palace. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Yosef. Is my father still well? But his brothers could not answer him. So dumbfounded were they on account of him. They can't speak. They have no idea what's happening, but he just said, I am Joseph. Ha'od Avichai. Is my father still alive? Well, obviously the father's still alive because Judah just gave a whole speech about not being able to go back and face his father. So we have to wonder a little bit about what Joseph chooses his words here, but he's lost, he's sobbing, and yet. It, it, what are you gonna say? Right? Like in this moment of revealing yourself, in this moment, yes, he's upset or moved or whatever, but I have to believe he still has to think about, he's had to have had a fantasy about this moment. Um, so he's he chooses the words, I am Yosef. And Ani Yosef, I am Yosef. Does my father still live? This is what he chooses to say to them. Niv Halu, they are completely blown away. So they can't talk, so they don't answer. you're safe. So Yosef goes on. He says to them, Gishuna, that same word that we were talking about. Vayigash, here's the command form. Gushu. Approach in the plural. Approach, please, Eli to me. Vayigashu. And they approached. Now you gotta you, do you want to approach this guy who's now fallen apart. He's sobbing, and he's telling you that he's the brother you threw in a pit, ready to let him die. Okay, you're going to approach? So they approach, because they don't have a choice. They've been ordered to approach the throne. And he says, I am Joseph, your brother, Asher that you sold to, to Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or reproach yourselves because you sold me hither, hither, because you sold me here. It was to save life that God sent me ahead of you. It is now two years that there has been famine in the land, and there are still five years to come in which there shall be no yield from tilling. God has sent me ahead of you to ensure your survival on earth and to save your lives in an extraordinary deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, who has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his household and ruler over the whole land of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Yosef, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You will dwell in the region of Goshen, where you will be near me, you and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that is yours. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, that you and your household and all that is yours may not suffer want. You can see for yourselves and my brother Benjamin for himself that it is indeed I who am speaking to you. And you must tell my father everything about my high station in Egypt and all that you have seen and bring my father here with all speed. And with that, he embraced his brother Benjamin around the neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Only then were his brothers able to talk to him. The news reached Pharaoh's palace. Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his courtiers were pleased. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, say to your brothers, load up your beasts and go at once to Canaan. Take your father and blah, 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 blah. And they'll come down and they'll live here happily ever after. And the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons and on and on and on. And to his father, he sent lots of gifts because that's what you do when you're a man of high station now. And they told him Joseph is still alive. Yes, he is a ruler over the whole land of Egypt. And his heart went numb, for he did not believe them. But when they recounted all that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had set to transport him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And, and literally, the spirit of Yaakov, their father, lived. Came alive. Enough. Said now he's called Yisrael. Enough said. Yis- he said Yisrael. My son Yosef Chai lives. I must go and see him before I die. A pretty, pretty powerful scene. Yeah. Like it's. I don't know why this this year, but um. Yeah. Mehmet? Uh
0: Why all of a sudden is Jacob mentioned as is Israel?
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think? Mm. Mm-hmm. Why is there at that point?
0: Perhaps that's um, when the uh, when the rest when his wrestling has ended happily.
1: Nice that the guy who wrestled his loneliness, his despair, every single day, of peace. every single year that he thought his son was dead,
0: he found peace.
1: He found peace, and the guy who could survive that is Israel. Nice, nice, Mama.
0: Amy, I've got a, I've got a question. Yeah. Um, in all of the explication of what happened to Joseph, as they talk to uh, Israel or Jacob, um, there was not any direction to say, "Tell Jacob what happened to me." Uh, you know, tell Jacob what you did, the the brothers. Yeah, exactly. And and that was there were two times when I picked this up two times when it was mentioned to tell something. And on both of the things, it's just Joseph is alive. And so Jacob's got to go, huh?
1: (laughs) Right. So Joseph is not requiring them to tell Jacob that they're guilty. Right. He he doesn't require them to say what he says is, tell my father about my high station. Right. Right. Tell dad what I've achieved. Right. <laughs> tell dad that, you know, that I won the Emmy. Um, You don't need to tell him about the other side. He doesn't he doesn't say don't. But he yeah, he, it's interesting that he doesn't require them. Does he think they does he think if he requires that they won't you know, they won't be able to do it?
0: Uh, I, I mean. Know. Doesn't Jacob say, you
1: know, WTF? Oh, yeah. Why is yeah. why but is remember, there- re, But remember, they they never said anything to him. They brought him Joseph's bloody coat. They never said anything. Jacob said, "Oh no, my son has been torn by wild beasts." So they let him make. A wrong assumption based on the garment they showed him, just like he made a wrong assumption about Tamar who veiled herself as a prostitute. So all through this story, there's amazing stuff about garments and clothing. Do you remember how Jacob stole the blessing from his brother? He put on Aesop's clothing. So there, so all kinds of misassumptions are made based on clothing. And that's what happened with the brothers. They didn't say he's dead. They said, hakerna, notice please, recognize please, whose garment, like what garment this is. The exact same words Tamar said to Judah. Recognize please whose signet and staff this is. Same exact words. So it's definitely on purpose that Torah allows Yaakov to make a wrong set of assumptions based on the clothing he's presented with. George? Hmm.
0: Yeah, two things. One is just a question. The text that you just read said that uh, Joseph was sold uh, to the Egyptians by his brother. And I thought that they just left him in a pit. And well, somehow they, the Egyptians. no, uh, they
1: saw, they saw, um, Ishmaelites a caravan of Ishmaelites passing, and they remove him from the pit and decide to sell him
0: oh, okay so you. they
1: sold him to a caravan. what he says is you sold me meets Raima towards Egypt in the yeah. direction of Egypt, yes, and so okay. it wasn't technically to Egyptians, but you sold me like down the river, essentially yeah. okay, down the Nile <laughs> you know okay. and And I wound up in Egypt, but he, they got, he sold them to a caravan of Ishmaelites because, because they did have a conversation about, did they want his blood on their hands? So they didn't like they, they, there was some struggle around the issue of, if we leave him here, he'll die.
0: Mm.
1: What if we sell him? Then we make some quick cash and we're not responsible for his death, essentially. Thank
0: you. The, the other point I want to make is is uh in addition to Hemeth uh thing that he uh, he found peace when his name was changed, uh, changed when they called him Israel. The other thing is this is the refounding of Israel the whole uh nation is going to another situation
1: beautiful uh, beautiful george in in Jacob finding out that joseph's alive and moving to Goshen. Yeah. Jacob begins the narrative that is the story of the founding of the people Israel. (laughs) Beautiful. Absolutely
2: gorgeous. Kayla? I have a question because the story seems very dramatic. Why didn't Joseph just go look for his dad when he already has this status? Why not send someone? Like, why wait for all this to happen before? I don't know. It just... I mean, it's a great story, but like, what?
1: so that remains one of the great open questions of this story is, and it helps you read Joseph one of two ways, right? Like, because whatever answer you come up with says a lot about Joseph, right? Like, why didn't he contact his father? You let your father wonder about what, does he think his brothers told the father I sold him? We don't know how to find him. Like what, what does he think the brothers told dad about where he was? So like he knows his father knows something, but even the brothers didn't know what actually happened to him. So dad can't know what happened to him ultimately. Right. Even if they said we sold him to the Ishmaelites, right. You know, there's no tracking code. Um, They would, nobody would know what happened to him. So even if they told dad the whole truth, Nobody would know. So Joseph knows his father doesn't know what happened to him. And he lets him think that the whole time he's living the high life in Egypt. He marries. He has two sons. None of that makes him want to call dad and invite dad to the wedding, maybe to the bris. Like, nothing. So the why not says a lot about how you read Yosef. Either it's trauma, like, and he absolutely cannot go there. Um, He's afraid to touch anything that has to do with his murderous brothers, right? Including reaching out to dad. There was no way to call him. You know, you'd ha- he'd have to send emissaries and, like, whatever. Either he can't deal with it or Yosef has moved on and is living the high life and can't be bothered with the folks back at the ranch. Like, they're so backward. He's got that accent, you know. He's got that whole Canaanite look. It's embarrassing. I, I, you know, we can't have that, right? So, so how, whatever you answer that question with, the why says a lot about how you read Yosef. And we're not told.
0: And this only happens because his brothers
1: show up. It only happens because by chance right. they come to Egypt, right? It's not like he sent for them and tricked them and then came out to them. Like it's only because they showed up by chance, right? Which we can't have in, in Torah, but, um, right, or in life. All right. Robin, talk to me a little bit about,
2: um, what, what's so moving. I was really feeling for Jacob. Um, some of us have missing children in our lives, and I know how Jacob felt, and I'm not alone. Okay. Correct. That's why us, I was that's why I was crying for Jacob.
1: That you understood what it meant for him to hear, my son was alive. Yeah. And Vatichi ruach Yaakov, right? His his spirit came to life because mm-hmm. on some level something is dead. I don't mean yeah. dead like Joseph's yeah. dead. I mean a part of that's Jacob. the
2: feeling. That's exactly the feeling. Right.
1: That there's a part of his spirit that's that is right. not alive. That's right. Or animated or available or accessible because it is carrying the weight of what's yes.
2: missing. And, and how much he loved Joseph.
1: And how much he loved him. And then all you can think about sometimes, <laughs> some years when I read this is all that wasted time. Wasted time. Right. All that time that he didn't know that his son wasn't dead or, or even worse than dead. For some people, I know what's even worse is that he's out there somewhere and I don't know what's happening to him, but he assumes Mm -hmm. he's looking at the coat that his son has been ravaged by a wild animal, which has to be one of the most horrible things you can imagine Mm -hmm. happening to your child. Um, But even if he pretends in in his own heart, he's still alive. He doesn't know what's happening right to his kid. Mm -hmm. So in either case, Joseph is not available to him. He's missing or dead, presumed Mm -hmm. dead. And um, what that does to him, right? And and he comes mm-hmm. to life when, right. um, when We're he hears that out. he's yeah. not alive, right? And mm-hmm. so and it works both ways, right? For some of us, it's children. For some of us, it's been parents, yes. right? But both both ways, there's a part of us that is that is compromised, right? And changed um, until there's a healing. And for some of us, that never came. You know, that healing didn't really happen. Right. Um, but thank you for being
2: willing to share that Robin
1: Jody's got her hand
0: up oh okay sorry
2: so you know it's interesting let me lower hand so it's interesting because uh, Joseph in all this time not knowing if his father is dead or not doesn't reach out doesn't send word and he's a bit of a, a revenge kind of guy I mean, he played that trick with the chalice. He's into, I think, revenge. I don't think he's reaching out. Uh, he's not caring so much about, oh my God, let me know my, let me get word to my father that I'm actually alive because Jacob could be dead and so, so I think revenge, that revenge drives him more than compassion. Revenge makes sense with the
1: brothers. It makes a little less sense to me revenge on Jacob. For what? Revenge for what?
2: Well, maybe less caring and less compassion um revenge for his brother with his brothers, but maybe not Caring, not having that compassion about what his father must feel like. So it's interesting because we don't see weeping in Torah very much.
1: So it's interesting that Torah is, is projecting a Yosef that is so choked up and so moved by Judah's change and Judah's willingness to sacrifice himself for Benjamin. He's so moved by that that he's sobbing. So it's, it's, it's an interesting conundrum. Yeah, on the one hand, he's had to leave the room before, before he came out to them, he had to leave the room because he was sobbing. Right. So it's, we've got this very emotional Joseph and this very, he responds to Judah's speech from a place of deep, I don't know, compassion, but certainly he's deeply moved that he's sobbing so loudly that all the Egyptians in the other part of the palace could hear him. Right. Right. So it's, it's an interesting, it's not like he doesn't feel. Um, Bob, and then Rita.
0: Yeah, I want to, um, second what was just said. Uh, I see Joseph as a very, um, uh, a a very complicated and conflicted individual. I see him as part anger because he didn't show up for 20 years, uh, back to Canaan or at least, you know, send a Nuchschlepper to say, uh, you know I'm um, who I am uh and that's pretty difficult to uh to really underscore on the other hand when they show up he cries and whatever and i think he may be crying for how he screwed up um, uh and how he did not reach out to the family sooner because the family means something to him um you know because he is crying but I don't see him quite as in, in, uh, either one level or another level, but at a very set of conflicted levels.
1: Yeah. I think, so who just put, a, uh, in, was it Lee? Somebody just put in the, um, chat that, you know, trauma, trauma is a tricky beast, right? It's not straightforward, nor is grief. Right, but like, none of it is straightforward. it's very complicated, it's sometimes circular, you know it, it moves through different stages and phases, and you know yeah i think I think joseph is is complicated to um, add
0: to what to add to what Bob said, Joseph doesn't ask his brothers how they are and what happened yeah. to them, what you've been doing how yeah. you doing guys? You know, because, he doesn't How's my together.
1: father <laughs> right, Rita. The father he didn't reach out to. Joseph is a dreamer. And if we believe all the dreams he had that foretold the future, he kind of might have known there's a plan here and God has a plan and I'm going to let it play out. So that's another way of looking at the whole story. Well, clearly, that's how he explains what's happened to them and how he's able to forgive them is because he believes it was God's plan for him. What's interesting is that you can be playing out God's plan and still call home, <laughs> right? Like, it wouldn't have changed necessarily his destiny. Once you become vizier of Egypt, you don't call home, right? It's, it, it one doesn't preclude the other, right? So it's it's an interesting, it's just interesting, um, i
0: I find it very interesting that you pointed out that there is very little sobbing in in uh, Torah. Uh, if you have any uh, further material on that subject, I would love to read about it because it's clearly a book, uh, about the people who, who have sobbed for thousands of years, yet there is not much sobbing, uh, mentioned in, in, in their book. So right. it's a very interesting subject to me.
1: And there's a lot of places you can imagine it happening, right? You, you can imagine when Avraham gets told, bring your son and sacrifice your son to me. You can imagine some sobbing there.
0: So, right? if you recall anything that we could read, I would love to. Um, get okay, the links. so
1: um, start with a Google search, um, and then the other thing you can do is look for every appearance of the word "crying" or one of its derivatives in Torah.
2: The, start with start toward... the
1: search because the, often there's some crazy stuff that comes up, that, as you've seen, having studied with me now for a while.
2: Sure. Yeah, so, right. I
1: could be. Forty-five good... pages on suet and why we can't eat yeah, suet, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's
0: like, Safaria
1: could be an interesting lead on that. Yeah, Safaria might be a great place to start.
2: Yeah. Bert, didn't God hear the, uh, the Israelites sobbing?
1: So Egypt? what's interesting is because I was thinking the same thing. That's Saaka. So it's, so that's a different word from this. Sa'aka is a cry out. Like, like when Hagar cries out, like she, she wept, right? When she looked at her son, she wept, but God hears her tsa'aka. You could almost call sa'aka a scream, right? Lituk, in, in, if you use it in modern Hebrew, it means to shout, to scream. So it, it's not exactly crying. Buche is the word for cry to cry to sob he i think it's even different than cry here it's like sobbing like it's you know even bigger um and she wept right so that's from Bukhe to cry anyway so um you can look up you know what different words are used but yes bert so there's a connection between and the way that that it's explained that when god hears the cries it's the shouting always of the oppressed and um stomped on, like, I can't come up with another, (laughs) better, like, it's, it's never the, the, it's never the strong, brave, whatever, who cries out and God hears, it's the cries that God responds to in the Torah, when we hear God responded to the tzaka, is always of somebody who has been oppressed, um, wrongly, unjustly, it's the injustice that God is responding to, of the victim, Right, because God says you better not like cause suffering, because I'll hear about it, and I will come down there. Right? Mm-hmm. Don't make me come down there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Bert, Carol, did you want to say? you know, uh, it's it's surprising that he had two sons. He was a father.
2: He should have. I, I, if you, I mean, as soon as you have one son, you, I mean, you you think you can think of you think of your father, or you think one child, you think of
1: your father, and that. You're saying Joseph had two sons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah. And he so should he think, should have
2: understood.
1: As soon as he had a son, you're right. saying something should have been moved in him to want to reach out. Exactly. To him. Yeah. Right. And he and he didn't.
2: And let right. that grandfather know. By the way, you're a grandpa, Jacob.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he doesn't. Yeah. Now, again, is that because it's trauma, right? Is that because he, he just can't? It's too painful. He can't go there. He, you know, Emma Linda.
3: I'm fascinated by the trauma answer to the question. And I think that, uh, there is often guilt and shame in survivors of violence and that, uh, I can see him creating a narrative where like Benjamin could have come after him. His father could have gone looking for him. They didn't. Why didn't they try to come find me? And, you know, the workaholic mentality of compensating for that guilt and shame that, you know, means that he's running all of Egypt to run from that is what broke in him when he heard Judah not apologize, but demonstrate accountability.
1: Interesting. So say a little more about that.
3: So so when when Judah comes forward to try and save Benjamin, that was the part that got me choked up when we were reading it, like to hear someone that, you know, wronged you demonstrate how much he's changed and that I am prepared to take accountability and lay down my life for my brother Mm -hmm. is is what broke Joseph of years of holding on to that trauma and that fear.
1: So when we talked about him maybe not having so much compassion that Jody said, Oftentimes, like you said, part of what comes with trauma is the inability to have empathy or compassion for oneself or anyone else because to go there is makes you too vulnerable and makes you too terrified. Right. And so, um, but I love that that what finally broke it open for him was watching his perpetrator take responsibility and offer his own victim you know becoming a victim himself to prevent it from happening to someone joseph loves and that i mean i the i too choked up a little bit there like it's like that just it was a very profound scene for me to to read it uh this year david i just uh, i just want to go back what what is i i know that
0: judah's in charge but he's not the firstborn so what's reuben like what's who who when did he become? I, I know that historically, uh, or in terms of our tradition, he's the uh, you know D- divinic grandfather. But when did he? When did he take over? Like, wh- why is he in charge here?
1: It's very interesting. So, do you remember what Reuben does? No, I remember
0: he doesn't act. He doesn't act like someone who should be in charge. But so what? Um, neither does Judah in some instances. Um, right.
1: Uh, so just, so some people want to read a lot about tribal history into this story a lot, like a lot of people say the reason the story is the way it is reflects a moment in our tribal history, right So Israel was really a confederation of twelve loosely allied tribes, and that this story is built at a time when Judah was ascendant. And Reuben was not that it reflects an actual historical reality when Judah is ascendant. So that's one explanation. That's why Judah's the boss here because it happened at a time and they're, you know, reading it back onto the founding patriarchs of each tribe. Um, and recall Reuben slept with Jacob's concubine. So Reuben gave up his status when he did that when he defiled his father's bed and essentially said look at me i'm the big man around here and i'm gonna sleep with dad's concubine he lost status so that's yeah. one but again i a lot of people want to say that's because historically reuben had been ascendant then wasn't and this is a story reflecting when judah was ascendant as a tribe and more powerful within the confederation.
0: Because I think Judah's acting exceptionally well here, almost in a way that is revisionist, you know, like, wow, this guy's really great. Yes. Yes.
1: And, and I think we can't ignore the Tamar narrative that's stuck in the middle of the Joseph story, right? It's stuck right in the middle of the Joseph story. And I think on some level it's that's, it, it has to be so that we get some kind of explanation for a revisionist Judah. Like, why we need one is your question, but it, let's say they need it because that's actually what's happening at the time, then you need the Tamar episode stuck in there so you understand how we get this new Judah, right? Or else it makes, you're right, it makes no sense. Like, it should be Reuben. Uh,
2: Carol? Yeah, the one word which I don't hear used is repression. And I think that's what Joseph did. He he repressed all his feelings.
1: And all of a sudden, when he sees his brother in front of him, he lets go
2: of it. And I think, um, I think that's what happened with Joseph. He just repressed all his feelings because he was hurt so much.
1: Right. Well, that's. I think that's what we were talking about when we were saying trauma. Right. That he he but can't have empathy. He can't compassion it. have compassion because you're right. He he has to repress all of that or right or it's he just too dangerous it. for somebody who's been traumatized. Right. Right. So yeah, I think. I think we would use the word now. Yeah. Repression and lots of other things we could say about how trauma plays out right. in, in our lives and in family relationships, like there's nothing more traumatizing than family relationships, right? Nothing. And right. Add family on family violence and it's pretty intense, right? Like that's pretty intense that they, they, they sold him like it. It's like human trafficking. Right. So, um, yeah, exactly. Emma Linda, it is a manual for navigating intergenerational trauma. And it's one of the things I appreciate most about these being our sacred texts about these being our sacred stories. One of the things I appreciate the most is that our story is not, we were the biggest, the bravest and most beautiful. And we therefore deserve to succeed. And we beat everybody up in the neighborhood and right. Right. And, this is not our story. We chose as a people to have this crazy intergenerational family craziness as the, our story, as our sacred story. Cause I think you can't, you could, but that's not the Jewish people. The Jewish people said, we're going to tell it like it is. And the reality is, even with our founding family, right? Um, that, this is how it really is. And so we have to build a life of holiness and a community of godliness regardless. It, we, we can't fantasize that it's going to be different or, or should be different or might be different, even with our founding family. It is not any different. Right. And um, so, yeah, this to, to the point that John is making, you know, that that Joseph is lifting up that we can grow because of these traumas. Right. So he he understands, and maybe it's just how we make sense of it. I've heard a lot of people talk like that. It's okay. God intended it this way. I hear a lot of people explain their trauma by, you know, it's okay because this was the plan. Um, other people don't need to use God. They just, they get it that, be, yes, trauma that what happened to me was horrible and I wouldn't be here and who I am if it weren't for that. And I like being the vizier of Egypt, thank you very much, right? Like, when people come to me with such pity that I was given away as an infant, wasn't that traumatizing for you? Uh No, right? Like I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't be who I am had my birth mother not done what she thought was a loving thing, right? So, like, a lot of us get it, that it's, like, things that people feel sorry for us about. It's like, yeah, st- some of that sucked, but, like, Joseph seems to really have grown in that he understands the traumas of his life as being purposeful and meaningful in helping other people. He wouldn't have been in the position to do that had they not sold him into slavery. Um, okay. So here we have, um Vaigash, right. So that Judah approaches Yosef and, you know, begins his speech. And then we have, Yosef unable to control himself and has everyone thrown out and orders them to approach him. Right? And then we have his, his speech about do not be distressed or reproach yourselves because you sold me. It was to save life that God sent me ahead of you. So we have this wonderful piece from Aviva Zornberg who says, notice that he says, I am your brother Joseph who you sold into slavery. He does not sugarcoat this. He's going to talk exactly to what's got them flipped out. What they've been carrying around. He's, he goes right to it and puts his finger right on it. His reference to the unmentionable fact of the sale is however made in the context of brotherhood, right? I am Yosef, Yosef, your brother. Um, unwilling to bow to the adolescent Joseph, they sold him into slavery. Now they find themselves bowing to him and entire subjugation, Right. The main thrust of his speech, she says, serves to show them his loving interpretation of his own history. And what she says, ultimately, that is about is that Joseph has found a vocabulary of self-creation, that he's been disappeared. Right. He's been the victim. He's been up. He's been down. He's been up. He's been down. And he finally has a vocabulary of self-creation. I think that's fascinating that that's what this speech is. He's demonstrating this to them. So they're going to go home and tell this to dad. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so, um so then uh, Kay Greenwald brings something from the Babylonian Talmud. Bar Bar-chani- Hanina, the elder said in the name of Rav, when a man, a person commits a transgression and then is ashamed of it, all their iniquities are forgiven them. We do not know if Judah feels shame after selling Yosef into slavery, but we can well imagine that he begins to feel shame upon returning home and confronting his father's grief. As the years go by and Judah loses his own sons, his sense of shame must have only increased, right? Once he feels what his father felt to witness it was bad enough to have it happen to him and now be able to identify with what he did to his father, Only a man who has faced his own shame could act so bravely and selflessly before the second most powerful man in Egypt. We are not so different from Judah. For most of us, shame comes when we begin to realize the consequences of what we have done. The harsh words spoken, the quick reaction, the injury becomes our shame. Unlike Judah, however, many of us find it difficult to own what we have to do to apologize, to make things right to refuse to commit the same sin again when given the opportunity to do so again. So then she talks about, you know, we're coming to the end of the year where days are short. Light is not a lot. And we have an opportunity every day to, to face that and think about that. Um, and Mark Mergolius reminds us there are indeed moments, which call for us like Judah to disregard and transgress, usually appropriate and necessary boundaries, right? By gosh, he approached, Before Joseph calls him, he approaches. You're not supposed to do that with royalty, right? Or, you know, the czar. (laughs) You don't approach. You wait to be called forward. But sometimes, right, we, we have to transgress usually appropriate and necessary boundaries to say that which needs to be said and to do that which justice requires without being paralyzed by concern for the unknowable consequences, Certainly, this quality characterized the lives of the classic Hebrew prophets. It is an essential element in our spiritual toolbox, even if it is to be used sparingly. Judah, Judah's holy boldness, and by his drawing near, breaks through Joseph's defenses, right? And that's when he... Uh, shows his true identity. Today, there is no shortage of political and interpersonal stalemates, which seem to demand similar audacity, right? That we feel like we're at such an impasse all the time that we need to create new pathways for moving forward. And that it may demand similar holy boldness um, from us. Um, and so he's saying that this week's Torah portion invites each of us to explore how we too might wisely and mindfully step up. And apply our capacity for chutzpah toward sacred ends. Um, and that comes about, right? It, it can elicit compassion, forgiveness, and repair. And I'll leave you with uh, Rabbi Shefa Gold, um, who says that the spiritual challenge and the blessings of Vayigash both rest on a pivotal moment the moment when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He steps out from behind the mask of power, the mask of the false self, and weeps aloud. These are the tears of profound relief and of love unbound. This moment of expansion is the result of Joseph's embrace of a paradox. Two seemingly contradictory truths live inside of Yosef, and when he can hold them both, then the true self is set free from artifice, What the heck is that paradox, right? She says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. On some days, we acknowledge the deep woundings that we have suffered. We mourn the loss of innocence. We confront the face of evil. And on some days, we absolutely know that those very same wounds are the source of our compassion and power. We celebrate the essential rightness of the path of life in all its turnings understanding that what feels like evil is an aspect of the goading force that unfolds the soul to its true breadth. And there comes a day when both of these perspectives exist at once. On that day, joy and anguish meet within us, and the resulting alchemical reaction explodes the boundaries of the false self. On that day, we are set free. This freedom allows us to come out of hiding, to finally tell the truth, and to reveal our true selves.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.